All right. Um, before I mute everybody, I'm going to, uh, any, any, any kind of spillover issues or questions or anything from last week? And then, then we'll, uh, if not, we'll just pop right on in. Okay, well, um, so yeah, today my plan is to um, tie all this up in a nice little bow for us. And in the process, um, we're going to cover a couple things that came up at the end of the class in terms of some of the questions, some of the comments, because um, that, that really helps with tying up in the bow. So uh, one of the things, and, and I did ask everybody to bring your Bible and, and bring, your, uh, bring your prayer book, because we're going to be looking up some passages to, to kind of help sum everything up. Um, you know, last week we talked about a lot of the um, kind of modern, you know, some of this anti-Semitism history for, for, for Christianity, uh, some of the modern issues relating to, to, to Israel, um, some of the Messianic Jewish things, um, you know, very, very broad strokes. And um, one of the things to remember when, when, we're, when we're dealing with this, this entire topic of Israel and the church of um, the relationship between the Old and New Covenants, Old New Testaments. Something to remember is that, that Judaism as we have it today um, is in many ways a religion of lament. And the, 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 the biggest issue where, where that lament just pervades Judaism is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Um, if, if anybody's ever been to a Jewish wedding or seen a um, a Jewish wedding on um, TV, you may have seen um, kind of the wrap up a, a wine glass and a towel or something like that. And then the groom stomps, stomps on it and it breaks and everybody congratulates them kind of as, you know, as, as part of the culmination of, of the wedding vows. It, if, and if you've never seen that, then, you know, I must be watching different TV from y'all. But it's, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty common thing in Jewish weddings. And the reason why the glass is broken is because um, you know, the glass is broken to, to be a reminder of the temple's destruction and how that kind of brings a little bit of mourning into, into even the most celebratory times. And, and most every major um, traditional ceremony within Judaism today in some way has a little reminder of that destruction of the temple. The other issue is that, that um, Judaism, you know, practitioners of Judaism, um, both, both, you know, in the religious sense, as well as, you know, the people that are Jewish ethnically, um, are and have been a minority almost everywhere for 2,000 years. Um, and the one exception to that is the modern nation of Israel, which, which kind of puts some of, some of these things into perspective. You know, there is a sense um, for, for every Jewish person I know that has ever moved to the, to the Holy Land, I'm finally home. I'm finally among my people. I, I don't have to kind of keep my head down culturally. Um, and that's, that's something that, uh, you know, as Christians, we, we, we often don't really experience. And we talk about the world being against us, but so much of kind of that cultural Christianity is a part of the West that, um, you know, we really don't have that same kind of experience 
And, and, and modern Judaism really be, becomes the two major events that shape modern Judaism are the destruction of the temple and the cultural ascendancy of Christianity. There's a lot of the developments in the early Middle Ages and late antiquity are almost contra in contradistinction to Christianity. You know, Christianity is going to say that Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah. Okay, we used that used to be our majority opinion, but now we're not going to say that because that you know that's what Christ, that's what the Christians are saying. Um, now we're going to look at Isaiah 53 in a different way, and, and that's you know that's you know that that's that's the way culture happens sometimes. So, um, I want to look at Romans 11 very briefly. Um, so let's let's open let's open up to Romans 11, and we're going to be skipping around in Romans 11. But I want to read to you a passage just to kind of put some stuff into perspective as we as we as we kind of put a bow on this. Romans chapter 11 begins like this: Saint Paul says, "I say then, hath God, hath God cast away His people, and His people in context is is ethnic Israel here." Uh, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people, which he foreknew. What ye not, what the scripture saith of Elias, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, and then, you know, some of the prophes prophecies from um, Elijah about the the, uh, the wicked Israelites in his days. And then, but, but what's God say to Elijah? I've saved a remnant for myself. You're not all alone. So skipping down to verse five, even so at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Um, in Paul's argument, we're talking about those that have accepted the Messiah, people like Paul and the other apostles. Let's, let's, skip, let's skip forward a little bit then. Um, verse 11, I say then, have they, again, ethnic Israel, have they stumbled that they should fall God forbid, but rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. The word of God goes out to the nations in part because Israel rejected the Messiah and then it, you know, the gospel spreads um, for our benefit is what Paul is saying. Verse 12, now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness for I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am, a, I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office, if by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them. So, so he's saying there, okay, you know, their fall um, from, from, from grace by the rejection of the Messiah has been to our benefit, as, or Paul would say to your benefit, but you know, here our audience, our benefit as Gentiles um, when they do come to the Messiah, how, how, how powerful is that? Um, and uh, let's, let's, okay, we'll, we'll keep going. Um, actually, let's pick up verse 15. For if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive, olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. Um, and so, you know, he goes on from there. We, we have so much to cover. I don't want to hang out on this too much. But the idea there being... Um, the kind of animosity, the kind of um, looking down 
um, that leads to anti-Semitism um, is, is really ant antithetical to what, what, what the New Testament teaches. Um, instead of, you know, it, it ought to be one of those things where we, where we do bring the gospel and we pray for um, some of that fruit. And, and there seems to be a hint here of, of a future restoration um, in some way, you know, maybe there's, you know, some going to be a big revival or something. We don't really know. I know that's the way it's a lot of times interpreted, but then um, he, he may just be talking about that, that remnant who does come to the Messiah. So that's the first thing I want to, I want to, want to kind of, as we put a bow on this. Second of all, um, we have, uh, the question comes up, what is Israel? We have a big definition here. And again, let's, let's look at some scripture, um, just two verses here. Turn a couple pages back to Romans chapter nine. See, if I was wise, I would have put a bookmark rather than closing my Bible there. Um, Romans chapter nine, verses six through eight. Um, um, halfway through the verse, for they are not all Israel, which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. So Paul's, Paul's, Paul's making a, a particular argument here in the way he's going to um, talk about the um, the chosenness, you know, the 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 remnants, the elect, that sort of thing. Um, so we have different ways that the scripture speaks of Israel. So on the one hand, today we can definitely talk of the political nation founded in 1948, the nation of Israel. Um, you know. And there are people living there that are not Jewish, that are not Israel by another definition, right? So um, just because you're, you're Israeli doesn't necessarily mean that you're Jewish. So that's one definition. That's a very modern definition. That's a very shallow definition. Theologically, that doesn't really come into play very much, but that's important when we are dealing with these issues. Um, second of all, we have ethnic Israel. So that's the Jewish people, those that are of the... Um, you know, descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And um, again, just because somebody is Jewish ethnically or is ethnic Israel doesn't necessarily mean that they practice Judaism. You know, we, we've had a few people of Jewish descent in our parish who do not practice Judaism. Okay, so there's that. Um, then there is a, a, a spiritual or um, concept of Israel. Now, St. Paul is making the argument in Romans 9 that all of those who have been joined to the Messiah are Israel by this definition. So you and I, um, all the Christians would be Israel by this definition because St. Paul's argument would be that those that rejected the Messiah, those of Israel ethnically, um, have, have in some sense been taken out of the camp. You know they they have been they have been cut off from from Israel in a spiritual sense. Um, now in Judaism they would kind of have a similar concept, but their concept would be those that are Torah observant are true Israel, um, and those that are not those that are have abandoned the faith or that are that are um, wicked or that you know break the Sabbath and all this other stuff 
um, are not truly Israel. They might be Israel according to the flesh, but they're not Israel um, in this sense of, you know, those who have, have an inheritance, right? Um, and, and we see this kind of in, in the Talmud, you know, all Israel has a share in the world to come um, because it, as it is written in the prophets, blah, 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 blah. Oh, by the way, these do not have a share in the world to come. You know, it's, this, it's the same kind of concept. But we would, we would see the New Testament when Israel is used in that sense that we're talking about um, those who have been joined to the Messiah uh, by baptism and faith, regardless of whether they are ethnic Israel or not. This is a distinction that's often not made in those dispensationalist circles. They want to have this radical separation between the church and Israel um, and that, that leads to some, some interpretive problems because there are places in the New Testament where that metaphor of Israel is used and it refers to all the believers, not just those of, of, of ethnic Israel. We do see um, something that might be helpful for us as, um, as, as Christians rooted in the liturgical tradition, you know, Catholic Christians, um, you know, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic Christians, that um, in Revelation chapter 12, we do see the Blessed Virgin Mary, we see our Lord's mother um, as a symbol for Israel, as a type of Israel. And even, even you know, your most, um, you know, rejecting any sort of Mariology, sort of Protestants, will we'll see that, okay, the woman in the passage represents Israel. Well, who's the woman? The woman is the mother of, of the Messiah. <laughs> You know, so, I mean, literally the woman is Mary, <laughs> you know, you, to, to, to ignore the fact that the woman in Revelation 12 is Mary is to um, kind of put on these, you know, anti-Catholic bias blinders on. Um, so oh, got a couple people and let me ad admit folks on in. Um, yeah, so, so Mary ends up being a type of Israel according to Revelation chapter 12. And, and this, this can be helpful, you know, what, what's, what's the symbolism there? Israel is the one who, who brought the Lord into the world, right? You know, Israel's major vocation was to bring the word of God, both written and the word made flesh, into the world. That was Israel's primary vocation. And in some ways, Israel um, failed to do that faithfully, but, is, but God still accomplished it anyway. In the same vein, re reminding that Israel, um, in that spiritual sense, historically the church has seen, the, the, our Lord's mother has seen the Blessed Virgin Mary as a type of the church. Again, what's the church's main vocation? To bring Christ to the world, to bring the word of God out to the nations. And also, Mary is the one who said, yes, who said, um, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord. And we as um, Christians have said the same thing. You know, for some of us guys, that handmaiden language is a little weird, but um, the church is fundamentally feminine before the Lord. <laughs> you know, we are the bride of Christ. And, you know, and that's, that's you know, but that, that shouldn't be any more weird than for, 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 for the ladies when um, uh, St. Paul calls us all the sons, <laughs> the adopted sons of God, because we're, we're united to Christ and, you know, that sort of thing. So, 
And then the, the final thing regarding Israel itself is we, it's important to see Christ, the Messiah, as the head of Israel, as the covenant head, as the king of Israel. That's what the Messiah means, right? And as such, the promises all get their fulfillment in the king because the king is the representative of the people. And so we can look at um, a lot of these prophecies and see their fulfillment in Christ, even if some of them have not been fulfilled within ethnic Israel. Um, that, that's, that's very important because that's in that sense, you know, being that representative of the nation, um, Christ is also, you know, Israel in, in, in some ways. So when your Jewish friend says, Isaiah 53 is not about the Messiah, Isaiah 53 is about Israel, the answer is, well, yes, it is about Israel because it's about the Messiah. Does that make sense? You know, he brings the nation with him in that suffering. Um, and as the king, as the perfect representative, he suffers for the nation. And then the nation can then end up being that first fruits among the people, um, that sort of thing. Okay, so um, that's, that's Israel. We'll put, put a bow on that. Any, any questions, comments about any of that, and then we'll move on to some of those, you know, kind of putting a bow on the relationship between the Old and New Testaments and how the law applies to us today. And again, if you do, unmute yourself and go ahead and call out because I can't see everybody. I'm going to try to get some of the participant view up here a little bit better. So, okay. Let's hit some of the questions from last week, or this will hit some of the questions. This in particular is going to touch on what, what Tracy was asking last week about um, the celebrations, the holy days, and that sort of thing. Um, by way of reminder, let's look at article number seven. This is going to be the way that we as Anglicans, this is our official position when it comes to the Old Testament. Um, in your 28 prayer book, this is on page 604 in the 1928 prayer book. Article number seven of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for both in the Old and New Testament, everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. Okay, so let's stop there. That idea of a dual covenant, Jews get saved by the law, Christians get saved by grace, that puts a stop to that. Even in the Old Covenant, they were saved by the Messiah, even if they didn't know what he looked like, even if they didn't know his name, right? That's, what, that's what's being said here. You know, in the Old Covenant, they were looking forward to the Messiah. In the New Covenant, we look back to the Messiah. They're looking forward to the promises. We're looking back to what he's done in fulfillment of those promises. Okay? Okay, moving on. Wherefore, they are not to be heard, which feigned that the Old Fathers did look only for transitory promises. In other words, the promises in the Old Testament, they're real promises. <laughs> Their fulfillment might be in a little bit different way than we expected, but that doesn't make them any less real. Okay. Although the law given from God by Moses is touching ceremonies and rites do not bind Christian men, nor the civil precepts thereof ought of necessity to be received in any commonwealth, yet notwithstanding no Christian man whatsoever is free from the obedience of the commandments which are called moral. Okay. Again, we've, we've talked about this before, but you know, this, 
this bears repeating always. Um, rites and ceremonies, that's your religious law. You know, all the stuff related to the temple sacrifices, the temple worship system, that is not incumbent upon Christians. As a matter of fact, there's a good argument to say Christians probably ought not to do that, not in the way it's described, and certainly not in the way that the rabbis tell you to do so. Um, why? Because in Christ's sacrifice, we see the fulfillment of, of what those are being, what those are pointing to. Um, the civil precepts thereof, this is case law. Um, that case law is going to give us um, principles for running, running government, running society in a Christian way, but that doesn't mean we have to do it exactly the way the Old Testament says so. Um, this is where some types of uh, Presbyterians um, kind of fall off the rail. You know, the, the, uh, you may have heard the term theonomy um, that was really big in, in reform circles for a while, um, where they said, okay, we need to set things up exactly the way the law says so in the Bible. Um, well, no, we can get general principles without having to do the, the exact case law. The example I love to use on that, you know, Old Testament law says, put a fence around your roof. Um, why does it say that? Because people hang out on the roof and you don't want people to fall off. What's the principle? We need, to, we need to protect things. We need to have safety in mind, have our guests' safety in mind. So perhaps a good um, application of that in our society would be put a fence around your pool so the kids don't fall in. Put a fence around that deck if it's more than um, 32.5 inches off the ground. That's the local code, by the way. <laughs> As an appraiser, I know that, that number very well. Um, you know, you got to put a, you know, put a handrail if there's more than four risers. Um, again, local codes. Why? Because safety matters, you know, so that's the principle. But the moral precepts are incumbent upon Christians. We are obligated to keep the moral law. Um, Ten Commandments being the big summary of the moral law. So um, how do you know? Okay, if it's related to the, to the temple system, it's ceremonial. If it's related to case law, it's probably civil. If it's related to faith and morals, um, to, to ethics and morals, it's probably that moral law. Not everything falls into those categories perfectly, um, but, but you know, we, we, we've done a pretty good job of figuring that out. Why does this apply to the big question from last week about the holy days? Where do, where do the Old Testament holy days fall into that picture? Are those uh, civil, moral, or, cer or, or um, ceremonial? Ceremonial? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, what? Said are they ceremonial? They are like, ceremonial. They have moral implication, but a lot of them must be ceremonial. Right, they are ceremonial. How do we know? Because they're related to the worship practices, the temple worship practices. They are the ceremonial law. That is not incumbent upon us. How do we know this? We're going to look at some scriptures in just a second to help us with that. Okay, let's um, let's let's yeah, let's open up the scriptures. Do do keep a bookmark in the articles because we're going to head back to another one in just a second. Romans fourteen verses five and six. This is where 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 the idea that the ceremonial does not have the same effect in the New Testament comes from. Or this is one of the passages. This is a major passage. Romans 14, verses 5 and 6. 
Um, one man esteemeth one day above another, another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day regardeth it unto the Lord, and he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord doth he not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, he that giveth, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, he eateth not and giveth God, God thanks. St. Paul is specifically addressing ceremonial um, issues of, of, of debate. Do you keep the new moons and Sabbath? Do you keep kosher? Um, you know, how does your worship, you know, worship calendar look? How does your dietary restrictions look? He's also has some of these issues of, you know, if you get meat from the pagans, is that going to, you know, is that idolatrous, that sort of thing. And what Paul says is eating and drinking in holy days are not what the kingdom of God is about. Those things in of themselves are indifferent matters. The, the important thing is, are we giving thanks to God? Are we putting the Lord first? Now, every Catholic, whether, uh, whether, whether uh, Reformed Catholic or Roman Catholic or Orthodox Catholic starts waving their hands, wait a minute, <laughs> we've got these holy days. What are you talking about? Uh, let's then, with that, turn to article number 34 in your prayer book or in the 39 Articles of Religion. Article number 34. This is on page 609. It is, oh, you know what, actually, let's, let's back up a little bit to article number 20 before we hit 34. I skipped an article. Article number 20, and that's on page 607 at the very top. The church hath the power to decree rites and ceremonies and authority and controversies of faith, and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. Neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. Wherefore, although the church be a witness and keeper of holy writ, yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so besides the same ought it not to enforce anything to, believe, to be believed of necessity of salvation. Okay, so the church has authority in how we're going to worship. But we can't say, the church does not have the authority to say, um, this is an issue of salvation. You know, you skip Christmas, you're, 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 you know, you're going to hell. You miss the holy day of obligation, and your mortal soul is in peril. There are no holy days of obligation um, in, in, in the Anglican church. Um, because this, the church does not, and the church does not have the authority to decree worship practices that are contrary to scripture. So um, idolatrous practices, we can't, we can't decree. Um, we can't declare something holy that, that the scripture says is unholy, um, you know, such as unbiblical marriages, right? Um, and because we, we submit, we have to submit ourselves to scripture, yet the church does have authority and it's a subordinate authority. So with that in mind, now let's move over to number 34 on page 609 at the very bottom. It is not necessary, let me tighten, tighten the thing here. It is not necessary that the traditions and ceremonies be in all places one or utterly alike, for at all times they have been diverse 
and may be changed according to the diversities of countries, times, and men's manners, so that nothing, so that nothing be ordained against God's word. As long as we're in conformity to God's word, traditions and ceremonies can change. And they have changed, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't have a Book of Common Prayer. You know, we'd, we'd still be, well, we would never even gotten to the Latin Mass if that would have been the case, right? We, you know, we would have been doing something that nobody knows what they did because we've lost it to time, <laughs> right? Um, and so the, we don't have to have uniformity in traditions and ceremonies. Let's get to the next sentence here. Oh, so long as what we do is not against God's work, right? Um, next sentence. Whosoever through his private judgment willingly and purposely doth openly break the traditions and ceremonies of the church, which be not repugnant to the word of God and be ordained and approved by common authority ought to be rebuked openly that others may fear to do the like as he that offendeth against the common order of the church and hurteth the authority of the magistrate and woundeth the conscience of the weak brethren. You don't get to do whatever the heck you want as an individual. You, the, the, and similarly, every congregation doesn't have the authority to do what they want. We are under authority, ecclesiastical authority, and we need to be submitted to that authority um, unless that authority is doing something that is um, repugnant to the word of God. So the church has authority over rites and ceremonies, um, not as an issue of salvation, but as an issue of good order. And as a member of the church, we all have a duty to submit to that good order. That's why, um, as the minister, I don't get to bring in whatever I want. I have, you can't see it on the camera, the camera's, <laughs> my virtual camera's blocking out the prayer book. Um, you know, I'm as much have to be submitted to the prayer books rubrics as you guys do, right? It's there to protect you from me, from me as the minister doing whatever the heck I want to do, as well as um, to, to be something that, that keeps y'all in order. It's there to keep me in order as well. You know, we've got a handful of liturgies that are approved for rites and ceremonies in our diocese. And the, the congregations or priests that are breaking from that are doing so in violation of this principle. And, you know, our divines would argue that's a violation of the fifth commandment because honor your father and mother applies to all the godly authorities, right? Okay, let's keep going. Every peculiar, particular rather, or national church hath authority to ordain, change, and abolish rites or ceremonies or rites of the church ordained only by man's authority so that all things be done to edifying. Individual, you know, churches do have the authority to change things as they need to. Um, you know, should a uh, word from the primate and from the bishop come down saying, you know, we need to put that old 1928 away and adopt the 2019, they have the authority to do that. And we have the duty to submit. They're not going to do that, but, you know, that's, that's the case, right? Um, because there's nothing sacrosanct about the 1928. Okay, how does this apply to, to those issues of what, what St. Paul said in Romans chapter, um, Romans chapter 14. The holy days are in of themselves um, things indifferent. You know, whether we practice objectively, whether we celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah doesn't matter. 
except that as Anglicans, we're supposed to do Christmas, right? That's our, that's our, that's our proper tradition. That's, that's, the, that's the authorized authority. Um, you know, so, so that's, that's, that's part of that. So we are under no obligation to um, celebrate the example from last week that was brought up was the Feast of Purim from the Book of Esther. And, and by the way, um, we do also need to differentiate between, between things that are um, descriptive and things that are prescriptive, right? So um, a really good argument could be made that that custom, you know, that, that, that in Esther, they're describing a custom of the Jews, not a commandment to the Jews, right? God didn't say you have to do this. Now, God did say you have to celebrate the Passover. And as Christians, the way we celebrate the Passover is to celebrate Easter, although in a New Covenant context, we don't have to do that. But it's a good thing we do, right? I mean, that's, that's a time immemorial practice of the church. At this point, I would say that has enough, enough um, force of tradition that it would be really odd to, um, you know, to, 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 to dump that. Okay. Um, let's see, what else do we have? Okay, so um, that, that's, really, that's really the thing about Old Testament practices is we, we do take a position of differentiating between the moral, the spirit, or the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law, and when it comes to issues of ceremonies, that is within the authority of the church, not, not an absolute authority, but an authority of good order. And good order is important in the life of the church. You know, every man, you know, me and Jesus doing my own thing, that's not the church, right? Okay. So putting some of this stuff together, you know, we do have continuity with the Old Testament. It's not, it's not a radical breaking. Let's, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 5 um, in the Sermon on the Mount, something that Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The big question here is, what does that word fulfill mean? And um, according to all the sources that, I mean, the, the word ends up getting used in a lot of different ways, but all the linguistic sources for Greek of the time um, say that in this context, what it means is to consummate, that the, that, the, that the law has been consummated in the person of Christ. Does that mean that the law now has then passed away? No. What it does mean is that the way we deal with some of the aspects of the law has been changed because of the Messiah fulfilling the law. So it, that doesn't mean we have broken with the law and now there is no law, but what it does mean is that on a practical level, the ceremonies, the ceremonial law does not apply to Christians. The civil law applies um, as case law in a different way. The, the practical end of this is that when you read the story of Israel in your Old Testament, that's your story too. Now you have been brought into, as a Christian, into that story 
that is your family, even if it's an adopted family, that's still your family. Um, when you sing the Psalms, there's a, you know, there's a reason why the Psalms have always been the primary hymn book of the church, because we see ourselves in the Psalms as well. When, when David is speaking those royal Psalms, you know, hear the voice of the Messiah, in, in, you know, because he's the true king of Israel, right? The, in the fulfillment, the Messiah is, as David's heir, the king of Israel. So hear Jesus in those words. When, um, when, 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 when we see Israel's repentance, that can be our repentance too. When Israel is, is <laughs> when Israel is cursing their enemies because they've been seriously mistreated, um, we enter into those imprecatory Psalms as well, albeit in different ways, right? Or ultimately we, re we recognize that our enemy is not a flesh and blood. Um, but at the same time, you know, Christians that are being persecuted can take comfort in those songs where David has been persecuted, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, and I can say, you know, I, I, I started off this class series by talking about how I had spent 15 to 20 years in Messianic Judaism. I never really was able to own the Psalms and to own myself as part of Israel until I approached it with this Christian perspective. There was always a sense, and you know, and this may have been just me picking things up wrong. I don't think that's the way that, you know, our elders at, at the congregation I was part of were intending it to be, not, not at all. But because of that, that dynamic that says, Israel is Israel, the church is the church, me as a Gentile didn't fit into that story in my mind, not really until I started praying with the Book of Common Prayer and I realized, oh, actually, that is my story. You know, um, I get to say me too when I, when I see the stuff going on with Israel. So then the final, the final um, big question then from last week was the discussion of when does, quote, the Jewish covenant end? When does, the, when, when do, when do think, when does that end and we have a new, a new kind of way of doing things? Um, I think a more precise question might be less about when does the, the, the Jewish covenant end and more when does the new covenant promised in Jeremiah begin? Because again, remember, we have continuity with the old covenant, even if there are changes. It's not that, the, that, that, it's not that things have ended as much as things have changed because they've been fulfilled by the Messiah. You know, they, they've, some, of, some of those aspects, the promises being fulfilled, the way we deal with that changes. So when does the new covenant begin, that promised new covenant of Jeremiah? Well, um, I, think, I think what we see in, in much of the New Testament is that the New Testament narratives are largely in something of a transition period where the... New Covenant has been inaugurated, but not all of the external aspects of the Old Covenant have, have um, those ceremonial and, and civil issues have um, been phased out the way they would be for Christians today. So we definitely see that Jesus talks in the Last Supper about 
um, his blood shed being the cup of the new covenant. With the sacrifice of the Messiah on, on the cross of Calvary, the new covenant has absolutely begun. But there's also a sense where some aspects of what can be called the old covenant are passing away. Um, hang on, just... I'm trying to, uh, I, I'm, I'm like totally about to sneeze. <laughs> I'm trying to not do that into the microphone. Nobody wants to hear that. Okay, let's turn to Hebrews chapter eight. Um, my, my sneeze seem, seems to have uh, decided it wasn't, it was just faking it. It was like, just kidding. Okay, Hebrews chapter eight, verse 13. Okay, we're talking about in Hebrews chapter eight, this concept of the new covenant. Matter of fact, um, we do have uh, in verse, beginning in verse nine, a quote from the, the, the promise of the new covenant from the book of Jer from uh, Jeremiah 31. And so that's a, we'll just start with verse nine. Um, verse eight. For finding fault with them, that is the, uh, the, the old covenant, he saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and will write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least to the greatest for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and iniquities while I remember no more. So what this is talking about is the work of the Holy spirit in the new covenant. Um, that, that we do have changed hearts in Christ in a way that wasn't there in the old covenant. You know, that's, that's why they kept breaking the covenant, right? Is because it wasn't written on their hearts and, um, you know, our flesh is weak. So um, verse 13, in that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Um, notice he says is ready to vanish away. And I think what's going on here is that we still do at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, we still do have this temple standing and we still do have among some of the Christians, you know, St. Paul did this in the book of Acts, for example, there is some sort of worship continuing at the temple. And, but, you know, there, there's hints throughout the, the gospels, Hebrews, um, certainly revelation that that temple is going to be destroyed. Um, possibly with the revelation that already had been. Um, and, and that changes the church as well because it really makes the ceremonial law impossible, right? Um, but already we saw, if we read the rest of the book of Hebrews, we see that the ceremonial isn't really doing what it used to do anyway. You know, those, those atonement-based sacrifices are just not a thing in the new covenant because Jesus accomplished that atonement on the cross. Matter of fact, you could see the, 
the whole book of Hebrews as something of a commentary on the Day of Atonement. And then um, one, one last verse with this at the very beginning of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, uh, first verse. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Excuse me. The hermeneutic has shifted. This is no longer an issue of, of prophets getting a word from the Lord and rebuking the people um, based on new revelation. Now we have the final word, so to speak, which is the Son of God. Everything gets, writ, gets read <clears throat> in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ, which is why we can again say the moral law is incumbent, but the ceremony and the civil are not, because the civil is case law and the ceremonial was fulfilled by the Messiah. And that's really ultimately, to put a bow on everything, where this lines up. Um, the Old Testament is our story too, but we do things in a different way. Um, the important things about the real estate and the particular ethnic family, um, while they're important, they have more, they have bigger meanings in light of the Messiah. And we need to be, we do need to be aware of um, what it would have meant to an Old Testament saint, you know, who is ethnically Israel or joined to Israel, um, ethnically speaking, joined to that nation. But we also need to, to be aware of how this fits into what the Messiah has fulfilled. Because as he said, um, all of this was about me anyway. You know, the, Moses and the prophets wrote about me. And then again, in the, um, the road to Emmaus, he explained how all the scriptures, the Psalms and the prophets and the, and the law um, were about him. That's all that I have. So let's, let's open this up um, for a few minutes and uh, see what y'all have. And, and do, do unmute yourself if you have a question, go ahead and call out. Okay, so I have a question, just trying to get an explanation clearer for that. So, and it's more than um, just, yeah, do you follow this or not? But through one of the, I think the thing we had given you before for the Bible study where we go through and we read, and so you look at what God's commands are and what a salvific acts and the relationships and all that. Mm -hmm. So when you have, like in this study we're doing that, you know, they'll go through and they'll look at commands. So when you read, I guess the thing is like, so say you have people that, are still struggling with that issue with the church. Do you know um, where their authority goes? So when you read scripture and it says, hey, yeah, you should remember these days, and the language in Esther is the same thing. It's like the Jews and their seed. So all the stuff that you're pulling out of Romans, it's using that same language, right? Right. And so then to sit there and go look through, okay, what did you, you know, what did God say or what does scripture tell us or what do you know goes through there? And I guess that one's kind of easier. Actually, it might be easier because God didn't say. Right? right, that's a big part of it. But the problem is, when you're going through it, it's the scripture says, so that is God saying, 
Do you see what I'm saying? So I'm trying to figure out how do you differentiate those commands? And, you know, and I don't think you should go back to your Jewish roots and all that and do it right. identical, you know, and however you manifest, that's fine. But it's when you're reading the scripture, how you can go back and forth, I guess, between, yeah, this is what scripture says. So this is God's word to this is, and this is what was said to happen to the Gentile, the Jews and all those following. But you know what? We don't really have to go here. So I guess that's, you know, and it's not just this instance. It's kind of, so somebody that doesn't have a seminary degree or isn't versed in all the stuff in the church, how do they actually weigh that and sort through that? Okay. Yeah, this is a good, this is a good case study. Okay. So first principle, just because it's descriptive doesn't mean it's prescriptive, right? And so, you know, who, who, who is, how, how is that command actually phrased, right? That's going to be a big difference. Um, you know, that this becomes a, a perpetual, you know, this is, this is the way everybody, you know, should do it. Um, but, but, you know, who, who's making the should there, right? So that, that's a big, that's, that's a big question, first of all. Second of all, that hermeneutic of moral, civil, and ceremonial is absolutely important to understanding that. And, and, and that's something that, that, that we do. This isn't just something that the church pulls out of thin air, right? You know, this, right. This, th this is something that we do see as we um, work through the New Testament and look at the Old Testament in light of the New Testament is seeing that that, that distinction is legitimate, even if it doesn't handily break down every single commandment in the Old Testament among those. So, so for the, on the first issue, who's saying it? Second issue, how does that, how does that, that division of ceremonial, civil, and, um, and moral apply to that? So in the, in the first question of who's saying that, you know, as you said, God didn't, God didn't command that. Um, what we do see is that the, the force of Jewish custom commanded that. What's that sound a lot like? The church hath authority to decree rites and ceremonies. It's the, it, there's the principle right there. The community of faith, to, you know, has this practice set in place because the church hath authority to decree rites and ceremonies. So that's the first question. The second question, civil, ceremonial, or, or moral, well, we, the first question kind of answered that, right? This is a ceremony and therefore not incumbent in the new covenant context. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, wait, wait, then that's, then maybe that's the other thing is so, and I don't know if um, anybody else in the class, the one, the verses that we're actually looking at that I'm kind of looking through that this is like, Hey, yeah, go do this is um, in Esther nine, uh, 26 and 27. So, you know, but okay. if you go back there, like you're saying this is ceremonial, but it had nothing with the, I guess I'm trying to figure out why it's ceremonial. It didn't have to do with the tabernacle. It didn't have to do with worship. It had, it's a memorial. So is that ceremonial? Mem memorial, mem yeah, mem memorial is, is well, e either it's ceremonial or it's, I mean, the reason why we know it's a ceremonial is because, because how it gets worked out is a ceremonial thing. I mean, you know, if, if, if we know anything about Purim, we know it's a ceremony. It's a, it's a religious holiday, right? right. Um, and, you know, and that's, that's where just, oh, okay, re remembering this day, well, what does that look like? And what that gets, what that looks like gets played out in, you know, in, in the religious life of the community. Um, it becomes an issue of rites and ceremonies, you know, so, so, I mean, 
And, you know, again, without knowing anything about Judaism, that might be confusing, but, 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 but let's, but let, let's put it through the ringer. Um, is this a moral issue? Does this speak of, of natural law, morality, um, 10 commandments issues? No, it has nothing to do with that. It's remembering an event, which remembering an event is not a moral issue, right? Is it civil? Is it case law? You could make the case, you know, maybe it is. This is telling you how you're supposed to do things, but it's not a justice issue, right? The civil law generally is, is, is justice issues, property issues, you know, things like that. You know, it's, it's, it's the kind of things you go to civil court for, right? Civil or criminal court for, right? Not a civil issue. Therefore, um, you know, is it a ceremonial issue? Well, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with the temple, but as you dig, you see, okay, it does have to do with worship ceremonies, right? And, and the, way, the way it plays out in the life of the community of faith is, is, is in a ceremonial way, Be, you know, because again, this is an example of the community of, of faith legitimately setting up a new ceremony. Um, otherwise, you know, the other conclusion would have to be that for the community to do this in the book of Esther, to make a new law at this point would be a violation of, of what had come before, right? It's not in the law of Moses. Therefore, how can they make a new law? Well, because the church hath authority over rites and ceremonies. Okay. And then, so that church has the right over ceremonies. Then is there like a, again, going back, is there a scripture I can. This, this is, this is an example of it. You know, this is an example of, this is an example of the old Testament church, so to speak, making a new ceremony okay. because they have the authority to do so. So they just, so because it was claimed then you can claim it now is basically what well, you're using what that as example itself. Well, what I'm, I'm saying sorry, is, is, yeah, what I'm saying is that that's illustrative of the principle that we have in, in our, in the articles of religion is that, you know, be, and, and, and again, why is that? Is that because it's an absolute moral issue? No. Is it an issue of, of, um, is it a salvific issue? Absolutely not. It's an issue of authority within the community. The problem you might have in these Bible studies is that you're dealing with people that think that the ultimate authority is in the individual, but nobody lives their life like that. We were, you know, it just, it just doesn't happen. You know, in order to be in a community, there has to be community authority in some way. What's that play out? Well, that's really beyond, you know, beyond the discussion, right? But, but, and, and, you know, so, and you're going to, yeah, certainly you're going to have people that, that have issues with the whole idea of the church having any authority whatsoever, but, but they'll find, unless they're just people that don't have church at all, you know, that, that yes, the church has authority. That's why you got a pastor up there, right? You know, everybody mm -hmm. don't get, a, don't get to run up and speak from the pulpit. You know, everybody doesn't get to decide what the church does for money, even if you're in a congregationalist perspective where technically, you know, everybody has a voice, um, that's still a form of government, right? You know, that's right. still a form of ordering the church. And this is just an example of how that ordering takes place 
in in a in a in a new covenant or an old covenant context. And you know, and 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 really, what what we end up seeing is that the nothing but the Bible perspective to running the church. Nobody runs that way. Nobody does it that way. It's impossible to work that way. Which is why, you know, we've, from the time of the articles up front, in the Anglican tradition, we've always said, yeah, you know, the, the, the scriptures are the authority that we submit ourselves to, but the church has derivative authority. And that the, the area that the scriptures have that absolute authority over is is faith and morals salvific issues right um because the scriptures don't prescribe um specifics when it comes to worship not not of their own um i did see another hand let, let me let me catch pam real quick i saw pam then we'll, we'll go to matthew my question here can you hear me barely yeah go for it uh my question had to do same thing with uh um, Tracy, because it said that actually the Jews established it for themselves. That right. They did it as you know to remember this. But it comes along with my question from last week was there were so many times in the Old Testament that says forever. You know, during the laws to do this, do this forever. Remember this, you know, forever. So the forever always bothered me because the new covenant came and Jesus fulfilled all those. So we don't worry about uh, the different sacrifices that they did, you know, offerings and all that, because there are no more sacrifices. So right. the forever is kind of gone by the wayside. So if well, that was the, the forever, the, the forever finds its foreverness in Christ. Okay. Does that make sense? Well, that's what I mean. So when Jesus in, in yeah in Christ, in Christ. Um, those forevers have been dealt with. Yeah, they've been fulfilled. They've been consummated. Okay. Um, you know, the, the sacrifice for atonement is forever. You know, the atonement has been forever happened in Christ. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it just a lot of people have asked me that, you know, when it says forever and they go, you know, quote the Old Testament and stuff. Well, Jesus came to fulfill those laws. So that's already complete. It has been. Yeah, the fulfillment, con yeah, consummated, completed. Um, it, finds, it finds its completion in him. So it's not that we don't have atonement anymore, right? Do we still have sacrifice for atonement? Yes, but it's a perpetual sacrifice that's happened. We still need atonement. We still need a Sabbath rest. Who's our Sabbath rest, though? Christ is our Sabbath rest. You know, all, you know, and and yeah, that's and that's where where that 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 hermeneutic, that way of approaching the scriptures, um, Christologically centered on Christ, is so important. You're welcome, uh, Matt. I think you were you were next, I believe. Yeah, I. I had a comment about, uh, you know, Christ and uh, like the Ten Commandments, like the Ten Commandments are the, they are Christ, so to speak. Uh, but also I had a question about uh, like the Eucharist, which it is ceremonial, but also it is, you know, if you read the Gospels, it is intertwined with salvation also. So I, I just kind of, is there, 
because I know a lot of that stuff sure. kind of blends together, uh, you know, when it comes to ceremony and stuff. And there are some things, I guess, that are nuanced where you could, like, which feast days we celebrate isn't really, you know, exactly on what day when we celebrate it isn't really the main emphasis, but, uh, you know, how, how those things intertwine with one another, uh, you know, is it important to still celebrate feast days? Uh, Kind of, kind of a deal, and also how it intertwines with like the Eucharist, which is uh, very much uh, salvational. Uh, it's kind of intertwined with you know partaking in Christ's body and body and blood. So, yeah, the sacraments become the sacraments become something um, very very interesting um, when it when it comes to their relation to salvation, um, and, and it's. It, it tangentially relates to this. So, um, we have specific, you know, one of the few worship-related commands that are specifically in the New Testament are those commands for, for the sacraments of baptism, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, right? Um, you know, when we talk about the other five, um, which some will call sacraments, some will not, um, those are all things that we, that we see that were either already being done in some way in the Old Testament, but bapt, Christian baptism and the Eucharist, while having some Old Testament patterns, weren't, weren't done, right? Those are things that Christ ordained himself. And, and they do have, as you said, Matt, um, they do have salvific implications and the reason why they have salvific implications is because those are the means where where the Lord imparts His grace. You know, it's not um, we we sh you know so sometimes um, folks from kind of a more Baptistic approach will will look at look at that language of salvation being tied to the sacrament. So, oh my gosh, are you saying me? Are you saying me that to be saved I need to come to communion? To be saved I must be baptized? You know, this, this sounds like me doing a work for my salvation. And that's completely missing the point. The, the point of the sacraments is not, I must do this to be saved. The point of the sacraments is, this is the way that God brings that grace to me. You know, God is doing the work in baptism, not me, right? He's bringing me into, into the covenant He's bringing me into the church. He's, he's uniting me to Christ. I'm not winning something by my obedience, right? And this is, and this is really, really well illustrated by the fact that, um, you know, infants can't, no, nobody baptizes themselves. You get baptized, right? Um, nobody, nobody does it themselves. Um, you get baptized. And with infants who have no say in the matter whatsoever, that becomes even more illustrative of, of, of the grace aspect of it. Um, when it comes to, to the Lord's Supper, we have something similar here. This is the way that Christ gives us his body and blood. And because he gives us his body and blood, that's why it's salvific. It's not salvific because um, if I don't obey the commandment to come to the table, um, I have somehow missed the, you know, the, 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 the mark and therefore I'm a sinner and thus damned. It's like, no, it's rather the way he gives us the grace of his body and blood, the spiritual benefits of that are through the sacraments. That's the way he's told us he will do this. Just like it's not, 
okay, me coming to hear the word of God is me obeying the commandment to, to get converted. No, the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to convert the soul, right? Who's, who's, who's doing the change in all of these things? Who's making the difference? Um, it's the Lord. So, so that, that is one, and, those, and that is a ceremonial thing, but we do have specific commands um, in scripture for um, the sacrament of baptism, the sacrament of the new covenant of, of, um, of, of, of the Lord's supper. Um, the details for what that looks like are not spelled out in scripture. Um, we, we do see evidence that they were already celebrating on Sunday, um, at least by, you know, when John talks about the Lord's day, everybody agrees just about with the exception of, you know, Seventh-day Adventists and some Messianics that he's referring to Sunday, like all scholars agree on that. Um, you know, we see in the book of Acts, them, the Christians assembling for, to hear the word and to, and to break bread. And in the book of Acts, most of the time, break bread is code word for the Eucharist on um, Saturday night, which in the reckoning of those people, Saturday night is Sunday morning, right? You know, that begins Sunday. So, um, but that's descriptive, not prescriptive, right? Um, so yeah, we, we, do, we do see that aspect. Um, so it's not that there's zero ceremonial in, you know, worship things in the New Testament. It's just that they're a lot less specific than in the Old Testament. And what that looks like gets played out in the life of the church, exercising her authority as the church. You know, this, the specifics of that. Yeah, hey, one more question. So you'd say, so would you say that like a lot of uh, our, some of our, yeah, some of our ceremonial stuff, because, you know, especially the way it's worded in our, our prayer book whenever, before we take the, the Eucharist and whatnot, is it, mostly preparational like because i know like in other like traditions like with with the eastern orthodox and like even the catholics a lot of their stuff is like you know confession and whatnot at least historically what i've seen with with the church was something that was in preparation for just the same as though you would prepare for the sacrifice at the temple is a lot of that like is it kind of intertwined in in that regard with some of that yeah, and this is something we'll talk about um, in our next class series a little bit. But um, in, in the in the in the order for the Eucharist, we see kind of a threefold cycle of um, repentance. Let me see if I get this right. Of um, yeah, r repentance, receiving God's grace, and then um, giving thanks for that. You know, so so re repentance. Um, receiving the grace and then um, Thanksgiving gets repeated several times. And this was pretty intentional by um, uh, Cranmer and the other architects of the prayer book. Um, in, in, our, in our particular communion liturgy, some of that's a little bit different from, from um, the way it was in, in, other, in the Church of England. You know, we, we have some Scottish aspects in there, which were trying to regain something that was a little bit more patristic. Um, you know, we, again, we'll talk about that in more detail, but there's a, there's a lot of preparation, but there's also Thanksgiving. There's also 
um, receiving, receiving from the Lord in different places. Um, so when we hear the word of God, we are receiving the grace of the Holy Spirit working through the word, right? In, in, the, in the beginning of this, the service. You know, we, we come to it first. So we'll, yeah, we'll, I'll just kind of trace this out in our communion liturgy. Um, we begin with reciting the, uh, the summary of the law or the Decalogue. And traditionally in our circles, it would have been the whole Decalogue. There's our repentance, right? We're getting the law of God um, so that we can say, Lord, have mercy upon us and, and write these laws in our hearts. You know, Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. That sort of thing. Um, so there's our repentance. Then we receive, we receive God's grace in the actual proclamation of the word. And then we give thanks in bringing our offertory, right? And bringing our, our, our alms. Um, in, and, and then once we get to the, the, the skip over to the canon of, of the mass, you know, as it was traditionally called, you know, the, the order of communion proper, starting, you know, after, after the offertory, you know, we have the actual confession and absolution, right? And what happens after, you know, we get, we are, we have confession, then we have absolution or receiving grace. And what happens after that? Um, we, we give thanks when we look at the comfortable words. Um, when we come to the table itself, um, prior to partaking of the sacrament, we have the, the prayer of humble access. You know, again, something um, penitential, right? And then we receive the sacrament itself where we're receiving God's grace. And then how do we conclude? We conclude with the Gloria in Excelsis, that, that great hymn of praise. Um, so we, we have this, this cycle of itself. And, you know, generally, generally we would say that you need to have, you know, word and sacrament go together, um, which is why, you know, kind of that communion from the reserve, some of those rites that we have in some of our supplemental texts can be problematic is because oftentimes they'll skip over the word of God and they'll just skip straight to the, um, to the reception of the sacrament, possibly with confession beforehand. And, and it's just truncated. It's, it's, um, it's, it's not a full meal, <laughs> you know, spiritually speaking. All right. Any, anyone else? We are, we are well over the hour, um, but I'm, I'm happy to, uh, there's any any final question we can take one more thing or we can just uh, uh, consider this uh, concluded. Okay, Pam, you get to be last in today. It's really not a question on this study, but our next study you said was going to be um, over like the um, catechesis. Or um, we're going we're going to actually begin with the prayer book. Um, so yeah, our next study. Um, I, I do believe it will start next Wednesday. If I decide to take a week off, I'll let y'all know. Um, I usually like to take some time, but I might just right, go right into this. We're going to start with the prayer book. Um, this, th and I, I think it's in, because of the way that we worship as, as traditional Anglicans, I, I think looking at the prayer book as part of that it kind of is almost as a preface to catechesis is really important, making sure we know what we're doing there. And then we'll get into some actual catechesis. Um, we're not going to do, 
you know, three years worth of it, like like we did when I went through the ACNA catechism. I have, I have a neighbor who is uh, seeking uh, to understand, and okay. it would not be appropriate for him to possibly join us. Or yeah, he's it's, he, he's welcome to. Yeah, he's he's welcome to join us. Um, it'd be good to have a copy of the prayer book. You, I mean, you really yeah. do need a copy of the prayer book. You right. might have more questions than answers with that. Um, you know, it, it might be a little confusing, but but by all means, yeah, he's yeah, yeah. it's it's open. I was just curious. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, I will um, I will uh, catch you all later, and I will go ahead and leave after I stop the video here. I'll leave uh, the Zoom in so y'all can kind of hang out virtually for a little while, those that want to as well. God bless.